Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendett with the Center for Naval Analyses with an update on the Ukraine war and Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, something a little bit different for a Monday. Joining us today is Michael Herson, the president of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, to discuss the surprise deal to avert a government shutdown and what to expect uh, this week, including uh, the effort to boost uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his job. Uh, Michael, thanks very much for joining us again on a Monday, especially since you're on the other side of the country. Great to be here. And before we get started, a word from our sponsor, HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, HII delivering the advantage. Um, Michael, on Friday when we spoke, or I should say on Thursday, uh, there was an expectation we were going to have a government shutdown. Uh, You called uh, on the speaker to make a deal. Uh, There was some pressure, but you and I have been in touch throughout this entire process. There was some pressure, sort of not enough pressure. Uh, And uh, Dov Zakheim did also put this forward as a model that some Democrats might come out and support him so that he could break and still keep his job. First, start us off. What happened? And why did what happened happen? Because it surprised a lot of people who were expecting a government shutdown. And all we've done is kick the can to November 17 and an expectation we will kick it again to just before Christmas. Well, you're right. Look, my head is still spinning uh, from uh, what happened this weekend. You know, for for weeks, you know, Speaker McCarthy was saying that House Republicans wouldn't pass any government funding bill that didn't include huge spending cuts and tough new uh, provisions to secure the U.S. border. Uh, then. Uh, he moved the government funding bill that without the spending cuts and without uh, the border provisions. And, uh, you know, Politico reported that at the end of the vote, they saw both, you know, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark and Pete Aguilar, who are the three Democratic leaders, walking out of the Capitol laughing. And Je- Jeffries looked at the reporter and said, complete and total surrender. And really, that's how we knew this will all end anyway. If there was a shutdown, the only way we were going to reopen is if the Republicans uh, surrendered and capitulated. So I think it's much better that it happened now before there was a shutdown. Uh, and I think it's in, mu- in the best interest of the country. It would have, uh, shutdown would have damaged the country and affected countless uh, lives. So how did we get there? So uh, you mentioned we, our last show we taped on, on Thursday for the Washington Roundtable. Friday, uh, they voted on three appropriations bills. Um, <clears throat> so on four appropriations bills. Uh, three passed, but the agriculture bill failed. Uh, then more significantly, they did put up the CR for a vote, the continued resolution, which had the deep spending cuts, had the border provisions, and 21 Republicans voted against it. So it failed by a pretty large margin. So that afternoon, uh, the Republicans had to meet to figure out what was the way forward. And uh, by the end, late in the afternoon, most left the meeting really not really knowing what the way forward was. But there were a few members that hung out uh, later the meeting with the speaker, and they walked away with the impression that the speaker was going to put on the floor the Senate CR. If the Senate passed theirs, even with the Ukraine aid, that he was going to put it on. Within two hours uh, of that, um, <clears throat> McCarthy tweeted that uh, after meeting with House Republicans this evening, it's clear uh, that the misguided Senate bill has no path forward and is dead on arrival. The House will continue to work around the clock to keep right. the government open uh, and prioritize the needs of the American people. Right. So at this point, 
uh, I'm talking to leadership staff and other members, and they're all throwing their hands up. They just don't know what the play call is. Now that takes us to Saturday morning. Republicans meet. They discuss all kinds of options, including you know a bunch of three-day CRs to keep the government open uh, and while they continue to negotiate. But it was clear they couldn't pass those either. And leadership stands in front of the group and says people there's no path forward on any of these CRs. Now, there was some pushback because most of the Republicans don't want to close the government. And with that, I think McCarthy uh, seized it and within minutes announced that they're going to put a 45-day CR on the floor uh, clean uh, with disaster relief, but no money for Ukraine. And they're going to put it on what's called suspension, which means it doesn't have to go through the Rules Committee. They don't have to vote on a rule. Uh, That way they can get on a vote. But if it goes on suspension, it needs two-thirds of the House to vote for it. And he was doing this with the hope that the Democrats would vote for it. He had not talked to Democrats about this. There was no deal uh, at this time, right? Uh, Now, when this leaked out and and they released the CR, many Democrats expressed interest because they don't want to close the government. They were going to vote for it. Now, the problem is that the CR was 71 pages long, and he was only giving them less than 90 minutes to read it. Right. And the Democrats did not feel that was enough time, and there were serious uh, trust issues. So <clears throat> as a result, Congressman uh, Jamal Bowman, it seems, from New York, pulled the fire alarm uh, in the Cannon House office building uh, to spark an evacuation, which I think a lot of people feel he did to try and give p- Democrats more time uh, to review the legislation. Uh, then he, he, has, he has said that it was a mistake uh, <laughs> for his part and that he did not mean to trigger the fire alarm uh, for what it's worth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, Rosa DeLauro, who is the senior Repub- uh, senior Democrat on the Appropriations Committee, then started circulating uh, a document called Republicans Not So Clean Continuing Resolution. And this started to spell trouble for Democrats supporting it because it said you know, things like it betrays our commitment to Ukraine, uh, took a lot of shots at it, but also said that it contained a member pay raise. Uh, and Tom Emmer, who's the House Republican whip, started texting members saying, Rosa DeLauro is telling people there's a pay raise in here. That is a lie. That is not true. Now, the issue really here is that there is an automatic pay raise that takes place at the end of the year. The Senate CR contained a provision that would not allow that to take place. The House bill, the House CR didn't, but only because the House CR was 45 days, it wouldn't take us to the end of the year. But because of the lack of trust, Democrats were like, look, we are not um, voting for this unless there are some changes. And right. the Republicans did make those changes, including that provision on, on the pay raise. Uh, the CR then passes overwhelmingly, 335 to 91. Only one Democrat voted against it. 126 Republicans uh, voted in favor uh, right. of it. 90 Republicans voted against. And at the end, uh, Stephanie Bice called for a motion to adjourn. Steve Womack was in the chair. He takes the gavel to adjourn out the House, just as Matt Gates is asking to be recognized. All right. And I know we'll get to that in a minute, but it, right. people believe that he was be asked to be recognized because he was going to offer a motion to vacate the chair. Now, it's important to note what was going on in the Senate. The reason the House was moving so fast on the CR and didn't want to give people a lot of time to read it was the Senate was scheduled to vote on their continuing resolution at one o'clock in the afternoon. They right. needed to beat them to the punch. But when the Senate saw what was happening in the House, they then decided they're going to, the Republicans were going to withhold their votes on cloture to prevent the CR from getting to the floor to see what was going to happen on the House side. And McConnell met with all his senators. And during this meeting, McConnell pressed them to go forward, including the Ukraine aid in the supplemental. And he was overruled by his fellow senators, including Senator Thune, who's in the leadership, who's been working behind the scenes with McCarthy on this. And then they agreed that they would now wait for the House to see what the House did. 
as I mentioned, the House passes it, it goes over to the Senate. And uh, there was a delay in the Senate because Senator Bennett um, would not grant unanimous consent right away because he won assurances that there would be a vote on Ukraine aid separately. Uh, he was able to get that concession from the leadership. It's just unclear when that vote uh, is going to be. And then it did pass overwhelmingly with 88 senators voting in favor of the continuing resolution. OK, so what's uh, next, uh, really briefly, right? Because all we've done is kick the can down the road. Some of the issues uh, still exist. Uh, Dove, uh, and you agreed with this model, that some Democrats could end up voting for McCarthy, which would be better uh, than whoever might replace him as speaker. The trouble is Democratic members don't have any trust. You've talked about the trust issue because there was a budget deal in June uh, where the president and Democrats gave some stuff up uh, in order to strike a budget deal to reduce uh, the, uh, you know, to try to address a little bit uh, the, the deficit spending issue, which is important for everybody, especially as inflation goes up. Byron and I are going to discuss that a little bit later in his segment. What what happens next? Because now there's a motion to vacate. But why would Democrats vote for Kevin McCarthy if it's an even bigger clown show? They can actually benefit from that, given that we're going into an election uh, season. Right. So having Chairman Gates might be the best thing that ever happened to Democrats, cynically speaking. Very good questions. Right. So first, the House was supposed to be out of session for the next two weeks, which is why I'm in California right now. Um, So they are now going to be in session, not just for the next two weeks, but the following two weeks as well. So four weeks stretch where they plan to pass the remaining eight appropriations bills. Uh, they w- they're in session today on Monday, and they'll be in through Friday. I uh, know, I mean, through Thursday. Uh, Rules Committee is going to meet tonight on energy and water and legislative branch. Uh, and that's the plan this week. Now, all this can be derailed by a motion to vacate, which we expect could happen as early as today. If Matt Gates offers a motion to vacate, which he said he would on the Sunday shows, uh, they can put it off for two days. All right. Now, that gives them time uh, to work with the Democrats if they choose to do so. My guess is is that Speaker McCarthy has probably spent yesterday uh, talking to Leader Jeffries about what it would take to get Democrats to support a motion to table uh, this or uh, to vote present uh, during the motion to vacate to lower the threshold. Um, Now, uh, Catherine Clark, who's the whip, has sent out a notice to all her uh, Democratic colleagues saying that this motion to vacate may happen. If it occurs, we're going to have a caucus-wide discussion to address uh, how to deal with this. So all the Democrats are going to meet Once this happens now, the Democrats are expected to ask for a lot of concessions in order to support McCarthy if they decide to take that leap. Things like, for example, a guarantee on Ukraine aid uh, to make sure that he lives up to the debt deal uh, to end the impeachment inquiry, uh, possibly uh, changing uh, ratios on committees uh, to give them a a stronger voice, especially on appropriations and rules. So um, now Gates is saying that he's got uh, in his coalition now. Uh, anywhere of close to upwards of uh, two dozen members, right? Now, that would mean that if the Democrats were to uh, work with McCarthy and keep him in place, they would need to change the rules on a motion to vacate because Matt Gates has said he's going to offer the motion to vacate every day. So the House right. will start off with the player, the pledge, and then a motion to vacate. So right. they'd have to figure out if they raise the threshold to what threshold do they raise it to to stop this from happening. Now, either way, Gates walks away a winner because if right. he's already calling this outcome the uniparty and he can continue to campaign against the uniparty and raise money and continue to promote his brand. If the Democrats don't agree to support McCarthy, uh, then 
the whole House floor is going to come to a screeching halt, right? It will be a revisit to what we saw back in January, right? That uh, this is the motion to vacate succeeds. McCarthy will probably run for speaker yet again. We go through a whole series of votes. And then who knows how long it will take. Leadership staff I've spoken to said last time it took four days. This time they expected it to take even longer than that. So how do uh, and and just very briefly, because we're already over time on this segment, isn't this in in some respects eroding the carefully constructed narrative that Republicans uh, have created over the span of several decades that they're the party of national security? If so many important, you know what I mean? You're, you have a government shutdown and affiliate impacts national security. The reason we're supporting Ukraine is to stop Russia from doing, you know, I mean, it it all fits a lot of very classical what we would have considered Republican narratives, unless you conclude that actually the Republican Party is not the Republican Party, we thought. It is something entirely new that's called the Republican Party, and national security is not as big of a focus. Well, look, I think the Republican Party is at war with itself on many issues, including national security. And I enjoy working in national security for a lot of reasons, one of which I consider it the last bastion of bipartisanship. But I think your point is spot on. I've warned my Republican friends that they are at risk of losing the mantle of being the party of national security. One, it's you know, it's a Republican senator that's holding up promotions in the Senate. It's Republicans that said that Biden's budget request was woefully inadequate for the last two years and didn't keep pace with inflation. Democrats were in charge, added tremendous amounts of money to defense. Now the Republicans in charge, they put in the statute that defense can only grow at 1% next year, which is essentially a cut. If they say they take the China threat seriously. I think the Chinese are laughing at the fact that we threatened to crash our own economy by defaulting on the debt. They're laughing at the fact we threatened to shut down our government. And also China loves a continuing resolution uh, because that prevents new starts in research and development. It prevents new starts in procurement. It's the Republicans that are saying that our, uh, our elections were stolen, so they're undermining our own democracy. Uh, so there's a lot of things that Republicans are doing that are counter that narrative. And as you point out, too, uh, aid to Ukraine. I mean, as Lindsey Graham, I think, has pointed out, if we don't continue to aid Ukraine, then the, the party of Reagan is dead. And what do we stand for? We risk losing support around the world. I mean, we complain that about Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan and how it affected our allies in the Middle East, thinking that we're not a reliable partner. If we don't continue to support freedom and democracy uh, in, in Ukraine, then I think we send a message to the rest of the world that we're not a reliable partner. And I think we've pushed more people toward, toward the East and away from the West. I uh, couldn't agree with you more. There's a lot made about the Afghanistan withdrawal. Certainly not a good moment, but these sort of antics actually are, I think, far more disruptive uh, and and dangerous, uh, ultimately, uh, or or as much, but I think actually worse because it shows a fundamental breakdown uh, in our ability to, to simply uh, govern. Michael, thanks very much. Already looking forward to the big discussion we're going to be having on Friday's show. Thanks very much. Bon voyage, and we'll have you on again soon. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now is Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts uh, on Russia, its military and unmanned systems, uh, both in Russia and around the world. Sam, I uh, hope you guys had a terrific weekend and welcome back to the program. 
Thanks so much, Vago. Great to be back. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's uh, a tenuous time uh, for Ukraine. Its offensive is making progress, but slowly, uh, although steadily, to uh, erode Russian uh, capabilities in Crimea, including uh, its air defenses. Um, thanks to Russian efforts, unfortunately, support uh, for Ukraine uh, in Eastern Europe, where it's actually most uh, necessary or in Korean, you know, is essential, uh, is faltering uh, as. Uh, nations that even most fervently supported it, like Slovakia, uh, now has uh, an anti-Ukraine uh, government or is soon to have an anti-Ukraine government. Poland has su- suspended arms deliveries uh, over a grain spat. Uh, and, you know, Ukrainians, unfortunately, are being a little bit vilified in the election campaign there. Um, meanwhile, Russia is ramping up war production and, and Wagner, you know, might be back in the fight as well. Where do we stand on the war right now from your standpoint of, of the nuances that sometimes people have a tendency of missing? Well, the Ukrainians are continuing uh, to make their um, advances in the south, slowly but surely. Uh, this is a very uh, tactical level fight right now. And and both forces are basically digging into the ground. Uh, and as we have mentioned earlier, Russians build a lot of fortifications, but no physical obstacle is insurmountable. And Ukrainians are using a number of technologies, number of tactics, and number of concepts actually slowly, um, essentially grind away at some of these Russian defenses. And so they are making incremental progress. Uh, it is sometimes difficult to secure that progress, continuing, um, considering how um, how much Russia is committing to this fight in the South. But uh, once again, it is important to know that Ukrainians are in fact making incremental progress. Both sides have traded significant drone strikes over the weekend. Russia struck um, uh, Ukrainian ports, especially around Odessa. Not all of the Shahed drones were shut down this time. I think the statistic is only 16 out of 30 Shaheds were interdicted, as opposed to up to 80 or 90 percent last time. And uh, Russians have also complained that they had to shoot down Ukrainian drones over Russian territory. So the pattern is very much the same as it was for the past several weeks. And uh, of course, any type, any type of warfare that involves this type of, um, this type of attempt to breach significant fortifications is going to result in some setbacks and it's going to result in casualties, but the Ukrainians are still making progress. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, about uh, Andrei Troshev. Um, after uh, Prigozhin and his lieutenants were all uh, assassinated, um, there was a sense that Wagner would be broken up. It would be subsumed into the GRU. And now we have uh, the former uh, Russian army uh, colonel, Andrei Troshev, uh, who has been tapped um, he was the guy who was leading Wagner's uh, Syria uh, operation. Uh, so he is somebody senior in the organization. And Vladimir Putin this week, or last week, I should say, tapped him uh, to uh, conduct special operations in, in Ukraine. What does Troshev's prom- promotion mean? And what does it mean, moreover, for Wagner, whose future has been in uh, in debate? Well, that's the big question. What will Wagner look like as part of the Ministry of Defense? Um, The whole uh, essentially uh, problem with Wagner starting early in the spring was the pressure from the Russian government and the Ministry of Defense to incorporate Wagner forces, Wagner structure into the official military. And this is what Yevgeny Prigozhin really disliked. And uh, many are essentially citing this to be part of his uh, rebellion against the Russian government in June. 
that he wanted to remain sort of semi-independent in his activities, in his business interactions, while receiving military aid and military weapons from Russian Ministry of Defense. And so sooner or later, this discrepancy, right? How can you remain independent if you depend on the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, for uh, all of the key components? How can how can you maintain the structure? And so this issue seems to have been resolved more or less in the sense that there is no independent Wagner anymore. There is a sort of a semi-independent structure that still remains in place. Parts of that structure have been subsumed in Africa, especially when it comes to business dealings. Uh, some of the Wagner fighters, I believe, are still in Belarus. And the issue of using their combat experience, using their numbers in Ukraine, is obviously at the forefront right now. There, uh, there was some information that some Wagner units were supposed to be repositioned around Bakhmut uh, in eastern Ukraine. And so Wagner is still needed. Um, by the Russian military, but it is needed as a subsidiary and as an entity that has to be controlled so that there uh, there are no more incidents and no more problems right. with Wagner as a group. And this is where Troshev comes in. So this is not Yevgeny Prigozhin, obviously. It's a different personality. Uh, it's uh, And um, it's a different system in place already. And there seems to be evidence of the MOD actually pushing down on Wagner enough to sort of... Uh, to subsume some of these elements into the official military structure. Utterly fascinating to watch uh, this, and it's going to be interesting to see whether or not um, they're going to be able to make uh, a difference, right? Because Wagner was successful, but not that successful, right? What do we need to bear in mind about what more we're going to see from that force? Because Prigozhin had said, you're, you've ground my force to a paste. Um, and what's one of the things he didn't like about it? Well, it is unlikely. It is unlikely that we're going to see uh, attacks, uh, you know, human wave attacks that we witnessed around Bakhmut earlier. Uh, and there's simply not enough Wagner forces to do that now. But what is important for the Russian military is to keep experienced fighters in their ranks as the war is going to continue well into 2024. And I believe over the weekend. Uh, there was some news that Russia is actually preparing for uh, a multi-year conflict. So Wagner forces had a lot of experienced people in their ranks, especially when it comes to some of the new tactics and new technologies, some of the newer assault operation tactics that were pioneered by uh, Wagner were more or less successful, successful in the sense that they were able to gain territory, but at a very high human cost. So it is unlikely that we're going to see such human waves used again in Ukraine. But look, it, this is Wagner and, and this is the Russian MOD. So I guess never say never. Um, you, I just want to go back uh, briefly. You know, you said in the drone war uh, that more of the Shaheds are getting through. Is that because the Ukrainians are running out of air and missile defenses? Or is it because of the, the Russians doing things differently to get those uh, weapons through? Because the Ukrainians were very successful at taking out significant quantities of Russian air and missile defenses in Crimea, right? So you have air raids and, and stuff like that and making it a little bit easier for Russia to penetrate, excuse me, Ukraine to penetrate. But what are the Russians doing differently at this point? Well, this is the result of one specific attack where some of the Shahids made it through. It is likely that the Russians are using different tactics. It is likely that the Russians may be using some of their newer um, versions of the Shahed, the domestically made Gerain, for this type of operation. Uh, Ukrainians are still very successful. They're still working on different types of counter-UAV countermeasures. 
especially against shahids and similar types of drones. But uh, the whole point about launching groups of shahids is that they overwhelm air defenses. And sometimes they can do so in a way that um, some of them are able to sneak past the Ukrainians. And in this case, it, it, it did happen. And uh, this is one of the unfortunate consequences of this type of war, where uh, these type of long-range drones are launched, are launched in big enough numbers to create a lot of difficulties for the defenders, no matter what kind of systems they're using. Ukraine does have um, a lot of counter UAV technologies. Shahids do not all require sophisticated missiles to be shut down. In fact, Ukrainians are switching more to what was essentially seen in World War II going onwards or, or forwards rather, and that is sort of a truck-mounted large-caliber machine gun that right. is mobile, that can move around, that can move from place to place. Uh, Ukrainians are using light projectors to illuminate the sky, much like defenders did in World War II to illuminate right. adversary bombers and shoot them down. Uh, so again, this doesn't require right. technological sophistication. It does require constant adaption and the speed of both decision-making and the speed of action, which is what Ukrainians are doing. So in this particular attack, some of the Shahids were able to sneak through. This doesn't mean that in the subsequent attack, um, more of these Shahids are also going to penetrate Ukrainian airspace. Right. Um, let me uh, take you, we've got a, uh, about five minutes left and we've got uh, two uh, questions. One of them is uh, the about Buravesnik, uh, which is the long-range nuclear-powered uh, cruise missile that Russia has been trying to develop over the last couple of years. It's one of six uh, super weapons, uh, some of whom had Soviet origins, uh, that Putin uh, is focused on uh, developing. The New York Times did a great story talking about how um, there are uh, renewed tests uh, going on uh, on the White Sea where there was a, a prominent incident that killed seven people uh, a couple of years ago where the missile failed and then the recovery team <laughs> got killed, sadly, uh, because the missile exploded. What does this weapon mean aside from... Um, sort of being a terror weapon that's as dangerous to its crews potentially as it is in terms of radioactive fallout and a whole bunch of other things, right? I mean, it's not it's not an optimal weapon unless you want to scare people with nuclear fallout or, you know, nuclear saber rattling. Well, I guess the common thread uh, for the Russian military uh, over the past 15 or so years has been the development of these wonder weapons that are supposed to compete on an equal footing with the with the very best that United States and the West and other developed countries have to offer. And, and so, as you have indicated, this is one of the sort of six wonder weapons that was advertised by Putin back in 2018. It was advertised by Putin back in 2018 as, as both the evidence of um, domestic technological achievement and a deterrent to uh, some of the... Um, some of the uh, policies which Russia thought were threatening to its domestic agenda. And so it doesn't mean that the missile uh, that the missile will actually be fielded anytime soon. But the fact that it's in development, that they're testing and evaluations happening, even if their incidents is indicative that Russia is willing to sort of put resources in a weapon that it thinks would be able to sort of deter and scare others uh, into inactivity should any conflict break out. I don't have a lot of good uh, understanding of what uh, of what the Provesnik is supposed to be or what its technical specifications are. 
Russia may also be concerned that um, the constant spending of resources on a conventional level war in Ukraine is going to sap a lot of its um, technological potential sort of away from these wonder weapons. And so it's domestic armaments programs, it's domestic funding is directed at this type of breakthrough development, technological development that Borovesnik is supposed to represent. But beyond that, we don't know enough about it. And clearly, uh, there's a lot that has to be done to make this weapon safe for use or even even testing for that matter. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, the question of Nagorno-Karabakh, which uh, we have uh, discussed an extraordinary uh, collapse once Yerevan cut backing uh, for the enclave. Uh, nearly all 120,000 Armenians living there have fled uh, to Armenia at this point. Some regard this as a collapse of Russia's regional influence. I sort of see this more as Russia deliberately, you know, punishing Armenia for its uh, 2019, uh, you know, public demonstrations that forced a whole bunch of corrupt pro-Russian uh, leaders uh, out of power. And, and Nikol Pashinyan in, and Nikol Pashinyan is among those who believes that Russia is a threat, and uh, you know that uh, they've got he's got to make nicer with Turkey, geography being what it is. What does all of this mean? Because at this point, it appears that Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Russia are actually on the same page. So a partition of Armenia, you know, I mean, nobody around the world really complained much about what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh. And so why wouldn't that just be an amuse-bouche before having the buffet of what Ankara has been trying to achieve, you know, for a long time, which is depopulate Armenia and create this sort of pan-tyrannic sphere that it's been trying to create for the last couple of centuries? Well, one of the countries that actually complained very loudly and publicly and uh, made a show of military force was Iran. And Iran uh, constantly emphasized that its interests in the Caucasus, including with Armenia, have to be taken into consideration. It's not clear to what extent Turkey and Azerbaijan and, and Russia are actually taking that into consideration, given everything that has happened. Uh, what's really important to consider is let's assume that Russia will get its way and let's assume that Pashinyan is removed and a pro-Russian leader is installed. What can that leader now do to reverse the situation, right? Uh, what, if anything, can be done for Armenia, for example, to uh, enable its security, to assure the security of the refugees and, and maybe even settle the issue of Nagorno-Karabakh? You hit it on a very important point in the introduction to this uh, segment that we're discussing, and that is geography is what it is. Right. I mean, the greater Armenia, it's the cultural sphere as well as the physical uh, sphere that is within the modern Armenian borders is is part of not just the Caucasus, but also sort of the greater sphere of influence um, that used to belong to Turkey, Russia and Iran. And so any small country in that region has to take all of these interests into consideration. And of course, Armenia suffered a lot because of the economic blockade that was installed by Turkey and Azerbaijan against uh, against Armenia after 1994. Uh, there are even infrastructure projects that completely bypass Armenia, which have been blessed by the entire world. We're talking about bakut belisi jehan pipelines and railroad links, right? All of these infrastructure projects are going north to Georgia and then south to either Turkey or Azerbaijan. And so for Armenia to be um, an integrated member um, of, of, of that region, uh, it has to sort of, uh, and not just Armenia, of course, but Turkey and Azerbaijan have to have to establish um, 
certain links going east to west, which take all of the interests of uh, smaller countries into consideration. And so on some level, maybe Pashinyan knew that uh, he had to um, essentially push for greater integration with the actual countries in the region that had the greatest impact on Armenian daily existence, and that is Turkey and Azerbaijan. It doesn't mean that Russian interests were not taken into account, but uh, Russian interest has been limited in Armenia for quite a while. So it's not like there's a very extensive trade happening between Armenia or, Ru or Russia, right? It's a, uh, For Russia, Armenia is a very significant security partner. Its presence in the Caucasus, it's the extension of Russian foreign domestic and security policy in the former Soviet space. But realistically, realistically, who are supposed to be Armenia's partners, right? right. How will Armenia ensure its peace, stability, especially economic development going forward? And, and that, of course, depends uh, to a large extent on Turkey and Azerbaijan. Uh, unfortunately, uh, what has happened to the refugees and, and how they're going to be settled from now on, it probably falls on the shoulders of Armenia proper and maybe Armenian diaspora in Russia or elsewhere. But Pashinyan was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Once he forged or wanted to forge a policy sort of that depended less on Russia, more on the region, he had to take regional considerations into account. And those regional considerations include uh, some of the more expansive policies and some of the more ethno-nationalist policies, both, um, both by Turkey and by Azerbaijan. We do have to uh, uh, also acknowledge that Nagorno-Karabakh region was never... Um, really um, accepted by the international community. Even Armenia right. itself did not really accept Nagorno-Karabakh as an independent entity of any uh, of any way. And so this was a frozen conflict. And frozen conflicts have the tendency to be unfrozen and settled one way or another. Um, and so unfortunately for Nagorno-Karabakh, the international community never really accepted it as an independent state, as a breakaway state, however we want to call it. There's a lot to consider here. Uh, clearly. Um, and it's not as simple as sort of us just taking a few minutes and, and talking right. about these issues. I do have to say I'm not a Caucasus expert, but I did follow some of the major developments, and especially after Azerbaijan was publicly arming itself with new weapons and technologies and was modernizing its military. And right. this is a very harsh lesson for many other states. When your neighbors are making public statements, when your neighbors are being are being completely open with their intentions, what do you do as a country? What policies do you undertake as a country? What are your military, economic, and diplomatic moves if your neighbors are making threatening statements and are openly modernizing themselves? Uh, and there, you know, there's no easy solution here, obviously. Um, right. It looks like for now, um, Pashinyan may actually survive this crisis. But again, if he's replaced by a pro-Russian leader, right? what is going to happen? Um, how will that leader actually navigate all the problems that have been created since. It is uh, going to be fascinating because the Russians are working uh, very hard uh, on that now. But it is an interesting object lesson, right? Uh, any 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 uh, country that opposes Russia tends to be punished, whether it's Ukraine or Armenia. So I think that that's kind of an important lesson and something I think that Putin is also trying to deliver, unfortunately. Sam, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. 
Thank you. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Uh, Byron, thanks very much for uh, joining us. And we have a little bit less time than we normally would uh, because of, uh, you know, Michael joining us at the top of the show uh, and build out on that a little bit. Right. I mean, you wrote a note uh, about where we are and where it is uh, we're going. You've noted right? The cost of money is increasing. Debt issues are lingering. The higher the borrowing costs are, the higher, the more it costs for the United States to fulfill its debt uh, obligations. Anyway, what's your take on the broader horizon and this episode and what it tells us? Well, yeah, I think Michael really laid it out very clearly, you know, just kind of how dramatic the the changes were this weekend. But, you know, really, Vago, I don't know how much it changes for the foundational outlook for the Department of Defense uh, FY24 appropriations, which really wasn't decided by this. And, and arguably, you know, I think November 17th, we're going to breeze through probably with another CR, <laughs> maybe more drama around the shutdown. You know, but the fact is, this hasn't resolved um, the, the kind of sort of Donocles overhanging the FY24 budget, which is the Fiscal Responsibility Act and the, the potential of cut um, spending to 99% of the FY23 level. Um, I don't, so in my view, I mean, I've never really worried about a, a found fundamental impact on the defense sector from a shutdown if it lasted for two weeks. Um, but I worry more, and I think this is where people kind of have to keep their eye on the ball. I worry more about where this FY24 appropriations bill goes. And, you know, the big um, screaming red asterisk is also, uh, you've got to worry about Ukraine aid in this kind of environment. I mean, I get the statements of assurance and whatever, but, um, you know, the, the Republican opposition to this is really quite stunning to me, um, given, you know, what, what the broader geopolitical stakes are if, if the U.S. somehow doesn't support uh, Ukraine, really both in its military, but equally in its in its financial needs. I mean, they still have to run a government and provide essential services to their population. And so as much as we focus on the military aid, the financial and humanitarian aid uh, is going to matter a lot to keeping Ukraine um, afloat and in the fight and, you know, there to see another day. Um, and anything other than that, I think, is just going to strengthen Russian resolve to continue this war. Uh, and you uh, also took a look at the October uh, scorecard. Every month you've got a uh, spending scorecard. What jumped out at you in October? Well, I think, you know, it's it's obviously the budget is still going to be <clears throat> the ongoing issue. Michael touched on this, you know, what happens to Speaker McCarthy. But I don't think we're going to get much of a resolution, on, uh, any, any clean resolution on the budget outlook. Um, AUSA is going to be the major trade show. There is a South Korean defense trade show that I didn't mention that's also going to take place during the month. Um, and then we're going to have earnings season uh, that starts, I think, uh, October 17th is when Lockheed Martin is going to be the first out of the box to report. And I I don't know how much, what what's new and different that these companies can really say about uh, the outlook, I, I think they probably should be conservative in their 2024 guidance and expectations. And so we're back to this question, you know, uh, are sell-side consensus expectations aligned with the underlying reality of what's going on in this business? And um, so I, I don't have, I'm, I guess, somewhat cautious on kind of the, the market environment and what 
what companies may be saying about that market environment. Because um, you can't just say, oh, here's the FY24 budget request. It's it's more complicated than that right now. Uh, in, in, indeed. And um, really quickly, give us uh, a look uh, at the week uh, ahead, uh, but also what are your expectations and the messages you expect to hear from AUSA, as you mentioned, right? I mean, it's always a bellwether when it comes, whether it comes to army or national security. Thankfully, there's no government shutdown that'll be, <laughs> you know, impacting the ability of people to both attend or to, or to speak. Uh, but, but give us your sense on what it is that you expect to hear. Well, there's not a lot, um, you know, the Senate has a couple of hearings uh, that are kind of tangential to defense, but still important. I know there's one, on, I think Senator Commerce is doing one on the CHIPS Act. Uh, there is money in the CHIPS Act to help uh, that the Department of Defense is going to receive and the microelectronics industrial base is, is a critical component of national security. Um, there, uh, There's a, an event at Hudson with Lockheed Martin's chairman and CEO kind of how they see the future of warfare that takes place on Wednesday. That's to me a must listen uh, for anybody interested in the defense sector. And then the, the think tanks, um, Brookings, Atlanta Council, and CSIS are all doing events on China and just kind of, you know, snapping the chalk line. So, where's the Chinese economy going? What's the state of Chinese military power, their capacity to generate military power? I, I think there's going to be a nice set of observations that come from all these events that'll help people frame. You know, what is this as a factor for defense looking forward um, and maybe getting their minds off the, the day to day drama of the budget saga in Congress and uh, AUSA? AUSA, um, my I think the most interesting thing is what we see about, um, well, a couple of big thoughts. Well, three, two, one on AUSA, Vago, I don't expect Army leadership to really talk a whole lot about it. It'll be the first um a presentation or a speech by the new chief um since he finally made it through the uh senator tuberville uh, blockade but um i think there's a broader question about capacity and capability um you know in the past the army really had preserved readiness uh do they do that again if budgets are going to tighten or you know do they really think about continuing on what seems to be a fairly successful <laughs> path of modernization um, the role of drones on manned systems, I think, has got to be front and center, given both the Army programs in that area and what's coming out of Ukraine. Um, you know, the individual companies are going to be holding their own uh, meetings with investors. Uh, some are scheduled, some are just going to be the, the typical chats you have at a trade show. So, um, you know, the XM30 program, FARA, we all look for, for kind of the details or color on those programs. But you know, the big picture for me is really still how's the army thinking about the future? How's it adopting to what it's learning from Ukraine? Um, and, and how does that translate to Taiwan and uh, the role of the army in the Indo-Pacific? Byron, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it uh, and look forward to seeing you next week at AUSA. Absolutely, Vago. And thanks very much to all of you for joining us and a very special thanks to HII for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible each week. Uh, tune in to our coverage tomorrow and throughout the week. Uh, hope you guys have a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks very much.